Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. We really hope to help you improve as an investor and in life with this show. And we think that books are an excellent source of timeless knowledge and that talking with authors can really take it to the next level. So we've now published three episodes with uh, authors and uh, we have some good material coming up that we are really excited to show you. And as we have gained uh, new listeners and welcome everyone, uh, we'd like to give you a short recap who we are and what we are doing. So I'm your host, Adi Palmgren, and with me in the studio is my colleague Niklas uh, Savos. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Eddie. So I've been investing for the last 13 to 14 years, and um, I I love the fact that by making a few good decisions, you can change your life for the better. <laughs> and I also like that you don't need the highest IQ to be successful in this industry. Um, I joined Red Eye in, in April as an equity analyst, um, I mean, really, because I wanted to do what I what I'm passionate about, and uh, being being an equity analyst and uh, doing this podcast is is really what I want to do. Uh, my motto is to be a bit wiser every day in order to make better decisions, and I think reading books is one of the best sources. However, I I don't think it's enough to read. I also think that you need to think about what you read and write it down, and and also discuss with others. How about you, Eddie? Yeah, that's uh, true, and that's why we have the podcast to not only read, but also to bring it up to a discussion and to really think it through. So um, I also really love investing. I've been in that sphere for more than ten years as well, and uh, I'm in. I've been working as an equity analyst. I joined Reda in 2014, also working with our analyst distribution and uh, publishing. And uh, reading to me is a big hobby, and I. Um, like this podcast is really a really good opportunity to continue with that. So, um, but Red Eye, what is that for those who don't know? So Red Eye is a research-centered uh, investment bank from um, from Sweden, from Stockholm, and we specialize in Nordic tech and life science companies. And um, I mean, the method of analysis is really fundamentally fundamental analysis. And um, I think now we have more than 150 companies under coverage. And uh, I think the quality of the, the analysis is really high. And I think if, if, uh, if you as an investor are interested in, in Sweden and, and maybe focus more on small caps, then I think you should check out what we do at Red Eye. Yeah, definitely. And we have a model portfolio with, um, a co- that where we cover stocks that we have uh, analyst coverage on. And uh, that portfolio has really outperformed the market over the last couple of years. Uh, so that's an impressive one. But uh, Eddie, what, what's uh, Red Eye Quality Rating? Yeah, Red Eye Quality Rating is uh, founded by Björn Falian, our CEO. He uh, has written a book about this quality rating that we will hopefully be seeing on the bookshelves later this year and uh, have him on the podcast. Uh, the, the rating is something that our analysts use when they check at companies. And it's used to determine the risk in every business. So the higher score a company gets in this quality rating, the lower the cost of capital and the lower the risk um, should be. So there's three different parts of it. There's people, business and financials. And it consists of more than 100 questions. So each analyst answers all those questions for each company that we cover. So it's really a proof that we are in in the deep research area. 
So the podcast is uh, fairly new, but the name uh, Investing by the Books has a long heritage. And you know all about that, right? Yeah, so I, I joined Investing by the Books in 2017 after yeah having, having started my reading journey for, for real, so to speak. I started to read a lot uh, before that time period. And then I found out about Investing by the Books and that it was uh, run by four really interesting um, investors and, uh, I mean, people who, who work in the industry. And um, luckily they, they said, yeah, you can, you can uh, start to provide material. So I did that. Um, and um, I think, I mean, the site as of now has uh, over 300 uh, reviews of investing books, making it one of the largest in the world, actually in that niche and um, yeah we're celebrating uh, 10 years now yeah amazing and uh, today's episode is very well connected with investing by the books as um, it is uh, a special conversation and it is run by Henrik Andersson and not by the two of us this time and that's something we might do every now and then in the podcast and uh, who is Henrik Andersson from Investing by the Books. Yeah Henrik is one of the founders of Investing by the Books um, and uh, professionally Professionally, he has worked as a fund manager for Didner and Järje. Um, and he manages the, the global fund. And uh, Henrik is one of the investors I look up to the most, actually. So, um, yeah, I think it's really someone that you should should follow. Definitely. And uh, in today's episode, he talks with William Green, who is the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier. Uh, who came out, uh, The book came out in April 2021. And... Uh, I think he got a copy of the book a bit ahead of schedule, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so the the interview is from April, but uh, it is definitely timeless and we think it's great material. So we'd like to put it out there for you. And William Green, for those who don't know him, who is he? So William Green is um, uh, a journalist who um, have, I mean, he worked for many of the most prominent uh, investing journals in the world. And... Um, he has also published uh, two books, of which this is the the uh, second one. The first one was the Great Minds of uh, of Investors, yeah. And uh, I think he wanted to dig a bit deeper with certain really interesting investors with this book, right? Yeah, there's a lot of them, uh, Howard Marks and Sir John Templeton and so on, like legends in, in the industry. And um, what I really like about the book is that he... He says that he has not interviewed them. It's not like a typical journalist uh, writing. He actually spent a lot of time with them and he's friends with some of them and each chapter covers one person and his moments with them. So I really like that. What are, what are your thoughts about the book and the interview? Yeah, so one, one thought I take with me is, I mean, many of these books that, uh, that um, talks about certain investors and how they, how they invest is that I think it's, important to follow other investors in order to gain new insights and perspectives but in the end i think you need to realize that you're not them you need to find a philosophy and framework that makes the most sense to you and then you can copy the things that fits within that framework and for me this interview gave me quite a lot of nuggets of wisdom Uh, maybe something that i have always thought about but maybe more confirmed my views i mean long-termism being one Hanging out with people that are better than you is another. Take a simple idea and take it seriously. And lastly, if the odds are in favor, bet big. 
you know, that's some really good nuggets there. And something that I really like is that it's not about only investing, but it's a lot about how to improve our thinking and our lives. And uh, that resonates very well with what we want to do with with this podcast. And uh, one question that stuck with me is that, uh, what are you willing to sacrifice for money? And that really uh, puts the point uh, here, I think. So we're ready to go. Here comes the interview with uh, Henrik Andersson and William Green. So it's um, a great pleasure to um, to welcome you, William, to um, to this second interaction. First time we um, sort of met was uh, through a written interview you did after you published your book, um, Great Minds of Investing. Um, so I'd like to just start on that. And um, what yeah, is first, uh, thank you, Henrik. It's lovely to be here with you. I'm really delighted to be with you again. I appreciate the opportunity. So, um, can we just start on on that end? What, what, I mean, what has happened in the, um, in the in the life of William Green since that book came out? Well, it's been it's been a good five years. And so, what I ended up doing is I decided that I wanted to go much deeper on certain themes that have fascinated me for many years. I've been obsessed with investing really for about the last 25 years. And my interest in investing has evolved over that period. I write about this in my new book, which is called Richer, Wiser, Happier, that when I started to be obsessed with investing, it was really mainly about the money. It was this sort of smart alecky game where I thought this would be great if I could make a bit of money without having to work just by basically placing a few bets. That's spectacular. And then I got this opportunity over the years because I was writing for places like Forbes and Fortune and Money and and Barron's and Time. I had this opportunity to interview all of these great investors. And so over the years, as I met all of these remarkable people, my interest in investing deepened. And I started to think, well, these are really remarkable people. And there's a lot that I can learn from them, not just about how to get rich, but actually about how to think better, how to live more wisely. And that is something that I would say I wrote about in The Great Minds of Investing in in an oblique way. I wrote about some people I really admired. And I tried in each of these short portraits of these people to, to include a little bit of insight about how to live, a little bit of insight about how to invest and a little bit of insight into their personalities. But those were almost like haikus. The longest was about 850 words. And so this time around in Richer, Wiser, Happier, uh, I took a very different approach. And I thought, okay, if I double down or quadruple down or quintuple down on the most important, most interesting, most fascinating, most impressive investors I've ever met, and I really focus on what they can teach, that's going to be really interesting, really valuable. So there were people like Howard Marks, who I'd interviewed a couple of times before, who I thought, well, if I could really spend time with Howard and figure out, for example, how this concept of mujo, which is a Japanese term for impermanence, how that's really shaped his approach both to investing and life, that'll be really fascinating. What are the deep implications of that? And if And if everything is changing and the world is impermanent and the future is unknowable, what are the profound implications of that for us, both in investing and life? And so so what I've really been doing over the last five years since we spoke last is going deep on those big questions like that and returning to these people 
that I find most insightful and most impressive that I've either interviewed in the past or, or read about in the past. And, and so for this new book, I was drawing on some of the, the most important interviews that I've done in the past with people like Sir John Templeton and, and Bill Miller and the like, um, Jack Bogle, Peter Lynch, the, these extraordinary people, Bill Ruane. But, but I also spent hundreds of hours literally interviewing more than 40 people just for this book. And in, and in some cases, I would spend five days with them or two days with them or uh, with multiple investors. So, so it was in some ways a mad venture that I was going to go so deep on these big questions and on these big authors. And, um, and it's been both um, <laughs> incredibly difficult and, and testing. And, and really, I would say the most fulfilling thing that I've ever done in my professional life. I mean, I, I wish I had um, a copy of the, um, the Great Minds of Investing. It's a beautiful book, physically and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the content of it. But it's uh, in my work office and not in my home office. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's the, way, um, that's the way it is. But um, you, you actually mentioned that you, even uh, four or five years ago, that you were onto this you know, line of thinking. I, I think you said in our written interview then that... Um, uh, I'm quoting, I was trying to figure out at some level, not just how to invest and accumulate wealth, but how to live a fulfilling, happy and successful life. That was about your conversation with Guy Spear. So this is really, you know, what you then did uh, for, for the next five years, literally. Yeah, yeah. And it's an, and it's an ongoing quest and search. I, I, there's a very small subset of truly great investors, led, I think, really by Charlie Munger that regard investing as a form of worldly wisdom, which is a phrase that Ben Franklin used. And so what we're talking about here is not just about making money. There is, money was clearly important to people like Charlie Munger and to Warren Buffett. It was partly for, for Munger, it was about being answerable to nobody and having true independence so that he could live and think and work the way that he chose to work. That's clearly important, but there's also an aspect of investing that I don't think is just about the money. It's an intellectual inquiry. You're searching for the truth, and if there is such a thing as the truth, and and it's also it's a very it's a very pragmatic pursuit because if, for example, you have a lot of ego or a lot of hubris or you're self-deluding. Um, or you have a lot of biases and blind spots and prejudices, it's going to catch up with you. And so I think because the stakes are very high, it requires, it requires a, a certain type of thinking that's very, very powerful, not only for investing, but for life. And so I, I really came to regard the greatest investors as practical philosophers, because they are engaged in, in a quest for truth. And so for me, this has become, in, in investing, yes, it's a great game, and yes, it's a great way to make money, but I think there's this, this way of approaching it as a microcosm for how to think better and how to live more wisely. And, and so what I ended up doing with this new book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, is I focused on people, on this tiny subset of investors 
who I think are not only extraordinary money makers, but actually have a lot to teach us about how to think and how to live. And, and there were times where I started to write about someone who was say a multi-billionaire, who had an incredible reputation for making money. And I would write a few paragraphs or maybe a page, and then I just stopped. It felt dead to me. It was kind of inert and lifeless. And I, I, the analogy that I've used is, is that it, it felt as if the body rejected the organ. And I think what I ended up doing is focusing really intensely on people that I admired. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone I've written about is an exemplary human being. I'm sure there are times where they behave terribly like the, the rest of us. Uh, you know, we're all, we're all deeply flawed. But I think, I think for the most part, almost, almost entirely, there are people who I admire and like, and I think we can learn a great deal from them about how to, how to live. And, and in some sense, I, I, I see a lot of the people that I write about as in, an embodiment of what I would call enlightened capitalism because I don't think that, I think they love the game of making money. And I think they're naturally really good at it, but I think they represent something more and they understand that if it's just about lining their pockets as much as possible and building the biggest, the biggest mansions and buying the biggest jets, there's something about it that creates a kind of short circuit in your life. And I, I remember going once to Omaha I mean, I've been several times to Omaha, but I went once to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting with Guy Spear and Monish Pabrai, and we were sitting together and, and, and Buffett said something to the effect of, if I had six to eight houses, it would actually make my life worse. He said, there's, there's, no, there's no correlation between that sort of expenditure and luxury and the quality of my life. And, and it's funny because I don't remember a single thing that Warren said about investing that year. But that line, that insight has stuck with me. And I, I suspect that's why 40, 45,000 people would go each year to Omaha to hear Warren and Charlie talk. It's, it's not because they were the richest guys on earth. It's because they actually embodied this kind of enlightened, this enlightened capitalism that I think all of us are a little bit yearning for. And it, 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 may, be, it may be that you in Sweden are a little closer to it than we are here in the US. Well, um depends which Swede you ask, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so in terms of, of, of that title, let, let me ask you, um, that, that you allude to yourself now, I mean, um, richer and wiser makes a lot of sense. Um, but is it your opinion that they're happier due to the success itself or is it due to the... Um, ability and, and their opportunity to actually um, I mean, work with something that they love creatively or, or that they love like as a craftsmanship. Uh, and that's why the happiness comes out because you, you can, some people like four houses, but then that's the new normal in a, in a very quick way, right? And then that becomes um, not enough anymore. Yeah, there's this wonderful phrase that I, I don't use in the book, the, the hedonic treadmill where you can get on this kind of this kind of treadmill of hedonism where whatever you do it's not enough and i talk about this a lot in the epilogue of the book which is called beyond rich where i thought well here are these here are these people who in some sense have hit the jackpot in life they've got 
everything, everything that everyone else fantasizes about. So what does the money actually do for them? And I, I didn't want to just do the reflexive thing of saying, well, money doesn't matter. What, what matters is, is love and, and, and relationships and the like, because we, we know to a great extent that that's true. We know that there are limitations to what money will do for you. But I wanted to do something a little more nuanced of, about it. And one of the things that fascinated me, for example, is someone, someone like Ed Thorpe, who I describe as the, the greatest game player in the history of investing, who's... He's, he's actually the guy who figured out how to how to beat the casino at blackjack then figured you know he was the the inventor of card counting i believe then then figured out how to beat the the casino at, at roulette then created this hedge fund that um basically didn't have a losing quarter in 20 years it was absolutely extraordinary and when i met him in new york city we met at this beautiful hotel the carlisle hotel and i'd say he was 84 at the time and he looked about 60 kind of this handsome, rugged looking guy, so lots of stubble, wearing black leather jacket, very happy, like just exuding joie de vivre. And so it felt like here's, here's a guy who won in life. And I said to him, you know, what, is, what has the money actually done for you? And he said, well, there are certain things it really has done. Like I, I love the fact that I get to live in this beautiful place. And I think it was Laguna Beach at the time. Um, now he lives about four miles away, another beautiful place overlooking, overlooking the water. So, so the environment matters. He said, look, I, I would hate to live in a, in a really crowded city where, you know, there's smog and there's traffic and here, here I can, I can work out outside. I can go sailing. I can, I, I can do all sorts of lovely things, um, with a beautiful view of the sunset every night over the ocean. And, he said, I, I said, are there any, any of your possessions that you really value? And he, and he sort of grinned and he said, well, I really love my Tesla. He's like, it's just a great car. And so there were things that he enjoyed. But then what I point out is that he never fell for the illusion that if he had more homes, more cars, more Teslas, more money, more everything, that that would make him happier. And there were some things that he did, for example, with the pay structure, with the fee structure for his fund, where, for example, he, he just said, well, if I were to invert this and to say, if I, if I were the, the shareholder in the fund, what would I regard as fair? And let me do that. Um, that'll be a really helpful guide. So, so he could easily have gouged his partners and instead decided to treat them really honorably and fairly. And then, and then later closed the fund and retired and stopped managing money for people. So, so he was never driven by the money. So, in a way, there's a nice nuance there that it, it gave him tremendous independence. It gave him an, a, an appealing lifestyle, but it wasn't everything. It didn't control him. It didn't work. He didn't worship the money. And he, it, it, it made me think that one of the things that all of us have to ask is to say, well, what am I prepared to sacrifice for the money? Will I sacrifice my, my time, my money, uh, my, my time, my, my energy? Um, my creativity, my relationships, my family. And he said to me, the, the single most important contributor to happiness is who you spend your time with. And so I think when you look at some of the great investors, it's very striking to me how many of their lives end in divorce because they became, they became so absorbed in their work. They were so intense. And some of them are not very emotionally... Um, uh, developed, I would say, you know, the, 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 there are a lot of great investors who have sort of Asperger's 
type symptoms without wanting to make amateur diagnoses, they tend to be very unemotional, which allows them to make extremely good analytical decisions under pressure. But that doesn't necessarily make for, for great marriage material. And so I think someone like, like Ed Thorpe was really interesting because he'd had a very, very happy marriage for over 50 years, although his, his wife had died. He was just about to remarry when I met him. Um, so he was very he was very balanced in the way that he lived. He took great care of his health. Uh, he was very fit. Um, he, he was very, um, very broad in his interests, I would say, had good family relationships. Um, and so it's not that the money doesn't matter, but I think like, like anything, when you start to worship it, it takes control of everything. And so, so I think just that basic question of, of what am I prepared to sacrifice for money is an important filter. And then I write a lot about the importance of your inner state of mind, that if you have money, but you don't have control over, over your emotions, over your inner landscape, you're in deep trouble. And so that's, that's, a, that's a big subject of exploration in, in, in this book. And it's fascinating when you read about the different people you met in the book, and obviously that they are um, very different in how they, uh, in their inner scorecard and how they reach it and, and what, what measurements they have. So it's um, uh, it's a um, diverse set of, of, uh, of I, I was going to say investors, but diverse set of, of, um, of persons. Um, yeah, and I, th I think I think when you talk about the inner scorecard, which is a phrase that Buffett often uses, you're 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 bringing up a very important issue. I think I think one of the one of the most important things that the money allows these guys to do, um, and unfortunately, they are mostly guys in in this industry, is is it allows them to live in deep alignment with who they are, in in all of its peculiarity. So. I write, for example, about, about um, um, Khan, who died at the age of um, 109. And, um, and I interviewed him when he was 108, a few months before he died. And, you know, here's a guy who, once he had turned 100, still continued to get a, a, a bus or a subway to the office in Manhattan. And only after he'd had, a, I think, a fall in the subway, did he, um, did he end up actually, um, he, he allowed his son and grandson to get him to take a chauffeur-driven car there. But for most of us, the idea of commuting to a skyscraper in midtown Manhattan to work at the age of 108 or 109 is not really our fantasy of a, of a life well lived. But I think, I think for Irving Khan, it was a kind of, um, my, my subtitle for that section of the book is, I, I think, the, the freedom to work till you're 109. And, and here was a guy who didn't care about wealth. He cared about books. And so he had thousands of books. He, he, he didn't really want to go to a good restaurant. He used to, he used to talk about how during the, the 30s, I think, he and his wife used to go to their favorite Chinese restaurant in, in downtown New York. And he said, it costs 75 cents. And then he would pause and say, for two. And so here was a guy who just didn't care about going to fancy restaurants. He didn't want to go on vacation. He didn't like traveling. He didn't like staying in hotels. 
He just wanted to read and think and study and learn and make good decisions. And, and he got great pride out of the fact that he created this very good family business that, that is still run by his son and, and his grandson, has done a great job for its shareholders. And so he created something. When I, when I asked him what he was proud of and what gave him great pleasure as he looked back on, on this 109-year life, it, it was what he had created in terms of his business that served his, his shareholders well, um, that the clients of the company well. It was the fact it was, it was his children, his, his busload of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And so I think maybe, maybe one of the reasons why I've been so fascinated by the great investors is that a lot of them have been able to construct their life in alignment with who they are because of that, um, that financial freedom. But also I think because to some degree they're loners anyway. So I, I write in a, in a chapter about Sir John Templeton, who I spent a day with in the Bahamas once. I, I call it the, um, the willingness to be lonely, this ability to diverge from the crowd. And I think for me, because as a, as a writer and as an individual, there's something a little bit subversive and independent and outsiderish about me. I think I found, I found a lot of guidance and wisdom in these people who had, who had diverged from the crowd and kind of constructed their own life. And so I think for all of us, how, however, however much money you have, this idea of trying to construct a life that's true to who you are is profoundly important. And, and I, it's something that I learned from Guy Spear when I helped him with his book, The Educational Value Investor, because I could see how he had constructed his, his physical environment in a way that supported him having a calm inner life. And I've thought of, I thought, I moved to America at about that time, I'd been living in London. And I thought very consciously about, about how to reboot and restructure my life just in the way that he had thought about it when he moved from New York to Zurich after the financial crisis. Uh, we'll get into um, um, to, to that um, pair of investors uh, later. I have a few questions, but it's, it's, it's funny. It reminded me when I read about the scene in um, Nomad um, office in terms of the Bloomberg terminal sitting at a sideboard without the chair. I was like, that's almost like Guy Spear had it in, in his Zurich office. I, I think Guy was inspired by Nick Sleep doing that at Nomad. I think Guy is a friend of Nick Sleep's. And I think, uh, you know, for, for listeners who don't know, I, I write a chapter about Nick Sleep and his partner, uh, Case Zakaria, who, who he, he refers to as Zach, who's remarkable as well. And they beat the market by something like 800 percentage points, 804 percentage points over 13 years, an incredible thing. And part of what they did is they structured this physical environment in a way that was totally counter to what everyone else does on Wall Street. And, and Nick Sleep said to me that he regarded Nomad, this fund, as a, as a, as a kind of high-minded intellectual experiment that was rejecting what he called the sin and folly of Wall Street. And so, so one of the things that they did is they said, well, everyone on Wall Street seems to be so obsessed with ephemeral information that, to use his phrase, has a, has a very short um, shelf life. So they're constantly thinking about, um, is this company going to beat earnings estimates by one penny? Or you know, what, what, are the, what are the earnings estimates for the next 12 weeks? 
And that's information that just has an incredibly short shelf life. And so if, you, if you're sitting in front of your Bloomberg and you're bombarded with all of this ephemeral information, it's not that that information isn't very useful or isn't, isn't, isn't relevant if you're, if you're investing in that way, but it tends not to be a very good way to invest. And I think on the whole, Wall Street, Wall Street is incentivized for pushing you to act so that they get bigger fees there. You know, there's a, um, there's a tremendous advantage financially to Wall Street when, when regular schmoes like us actually do stuff. And, and I think what someone like Nick Sleep figured out is that what you really want to do both in markets and in life is to construct a calm environment where you have real control over your information diet. And so one of the things that I think is emblematic of that is that they, as you say, put, put their Bloomberg terminal, it's a single Bloomberg terminal, it's small. I visited them in their office on, on the King's Road in London, and it's a small single Bloomberg term, terminal, not the four screens. And it's on this low side table. And what Zach said to me is, Nick consciously put it on that table because after about five minutes, you'd be crouching down, leaning down on the floor and you'd say, ow, my back's killing me. And, and, and you'd have to get up. And, and what Guy Spear said to me many years ago, which I thought was a very profound insight, is, is that you can't use the mind on the mind. And so simply becoming aware of your weird mental glitches, like the fact that you're super distractible or that, that you're biased or something, doesn't just, just for example, studying Charlie Munger's list of, of psychological glitches that we're all prone to doesn't necessarily protect you from those glitches, from those flaws. And so, so if you can't use the mind on the mind, you have to actually find some fairly tangible workarounds. And one of them, which, which paradoxically Guy doesn't use anymore, he, he does now use his Bloomberg much more, um, but maybe in a more limited way, one of them is, is actually physically to make it difficult for yourself to behave in this kind of impetuous way where you're, where you're constantly guzzling and ingesting ephemeral information. And what, what Nick Sleep said is what really matters is what he calls destination analysis. So you're saying, what's a good destination in life for, for me, for this business, for this, this investment? So he would look at a company like Costco, for example, or Amazon, which were massive, massive positions that, that, that he's owned for, I think, 18 years and 16 years, respectively. And he would say, what's the ultimate destination? Is it a great destination? And is the company doing what it needs in terms of the inputs to reach that ultimate destination of greatness? So for example, how are they treating their customers? Are they treating them with respect? Are they, are they giving them great value? Are they making the, the product more and more efficient, more, uh, more and more easy to use, better and better value? Are they mistreating anybody in their ecosystem, whether it's their, their shareholders, their suppliers, their customers? Is there some sort of short circuit that's going to, that, that's going to cause them not to reach that eventual greatness? So that sort of information actually has a very, very long shelf life. And so this idea of shelf life became a really important filter for them, not just in how to invest, but how to think. And so I think that's something that 
for, for all of us, whether you're a writer, you're an investor, whether you're a, a running a business, creating a startup, whatever, that focus on shelf life, on, 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 on the destination and on the inputs that will get you there is profoundly important. And, and, and you can apply it to any area of your life. So you can say, well, the ultimate destination is I'm going to be dead. And so people are going to come to my funeral. What are they going to say about me? Will I have left a good legacy? And so one of the things that Nick Sleep said to me is, when I'm 80, I don't want to look back and say, well, I had a jet and I had four houses. And, you know, I want to look back and say, well, I treated my shareholders equitably. I treated my partner really decently. I created something worthwhile. And then I gave away the money in a way that was really thoughtful and long-term and created the maximum amount of, of benefit in the world. And that's totally different than the kind of short-term focus that most of us have and that most people on Wall Street have. And so I think we're all on a kind of spectrum here, but the more we can move towards that kind of long-termism, towards the, the deferral of gratification instead, in, instead of instead of falling for this, this kind of constant craving for instant gratification, the better and happier our lives will be. And it struck me as very interesting that this is a, this is a kind of master principle that goes through investing business and life, that if you, if you can defer gratification and focus on the long-term instead of, yeah, yeah, this donut looks really great, or yeah, I'd really like to trade um, this GameStop thing for the next 12 seconds. Um, or, you know, I'd like to, um, as Nick Sleep would say, I'd like to go to this girly bar, or I'd like to, he said, Nick Sweets from this candy store. You know, those are things that he said, they, they all give a little bit of a thrill in the short term, but they're borrowing from the long term. And so in some way, there's a kind of superpower to the ability to defer gratification. And in, a, and in a world where everyone else is becoming extremely short-term, your ability to focus on the long-term becomes extraordinarily powerful. And I would argue that's something that, that Buffett has done, that Munger has done, Jeff Bezos has done, Nick Sleep has done. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily powerful idea. And I, I, I would argue that it's one, one of the one of the master principles that we ought to be cloning from the greatest investors. Wonderful. Um, I learn a lot um, uh, listening to you and, and just um, the, the, the summaries of it all. Um, but Thanks. one, um, uh, I was going to ask you what, what the, the goal was with, with this book. And then I read the first um, sort of profile um, when you spend time with Monish Pabrai, uh, and then I, I think I understood what what the goal was. Um, it's it's such a great way to start a book. Um, what was it like to hang out with him? Monish is remarkable, and one of the things that I decided right at, right as I was hatching my plans for the book is, okay, who who am I going to spend a lot of time with? Well, I really want to spend time with Monish. And I really want to spend time with Arnold Vandenberg. And the book starts with Monish and ends with Arnold. And that's, that's by design. Those were the first two interviews that I planned. And I, I went 
even before I think I had sold the book to Scribner, which is an imprint of Simon Schuster, I went for five days to India with Monish. And so Monish, Monish I spent an enormous amount of time with over the years. And I had written about him before in The Great Minds of Investing. And because I'm close friends with Guy Spear, who's close friends with Monish, I'd, I'd met Monish a bunch of times. And Monish, um, Monish is a slightly scary figure, right? He, he'll, um, he's not only fearsomely clever, but he, um, as, as Guy would put it, he, there's, a, there's a kind of sniff test where, uh, you know, he decides whether you pass the sniff test. And so for a while, you're kind of on tenterhooks waiting to see, does, does Monish actually think I'm, I'm not someone he wants to hang out with? And, and um, one of the things that Monish said to me is that um, when he has lunch with someone, for example, he'll, he'll say to himself, did I enjoy that lunch or not? And he said, and if I didn't enjoy it, there will never be another lunch again. And which is kind of intimidating, right? And, I, and then he said- Put a bit of pressure. Exactly. And, and then he said, um, when I meet someone, I'll say, is this person gonna make me better or worse? And if they're gonna make me worse, I won't, I won't see them again. And so there's something, um, A, very intimidating about that, B, very aligned, with his own personality and his desire to make himself a better person and to, to, to internalize what Warren Buffett said to him, which is, um, if you hang out with people who are better than you, you can't help but improve. And so he's kind of weaponized that insight from Warren. And I think part of what's really fascinating uh, about Monish is he, he lives his life by cloning great ideas and insights and habits and practices from other people, whether it's a, a Charlie Munger who he's very close to or, or Warren, um, or even just looking at the portfolios of people like uh, Seth Klarman or uh, David Einhorn, people he admires as investors. Um, but he does it with a kind of ferocity and an intensity that I think very few people can appreciate. And, this is one of the things that has had a profound effect on me in writing the book and in spending time with Monish, is there's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful line from Charlie Munger where he said, take a simple idea and take it seriously. And what Monish has done is he'll take a simple idea like the importance of long-term compounding, the magic of long-term compounding, or the power of cloning the best insights and practices that other people have had, or the importance of simply being truthful, ruthlessly truthful. And he'll take those ideas to the nth degree. And, and this is one of the things that I think distinguishes the greatest investors from most people is there's a, there's a kind of intensity and a ferocity to them. And this is something that Guy Spear mentioned after reading the manuscript that I added in a footnote where he said that when you use a phrase like, like Monish being a shameless cloner, which is a phrase that Monish uses, uses about himself. He says that really understates the ferocity and intensity with which he's cloning the best ideas. And he said, underneath the calm, placid exterior of all of the great investors in my book, there's this ferocity. And I thought it was a very profound insight from Guy, who's a very, very clever and perceptive chap, that you, 
it's not that their ideas are necessarily better than our ideas. It's the ferocity with which they pursue them. And so I think one way that I'd like people to read my book is almost as a, uh, to mix a metaphor, it's almost a buffet where there are so many ideas in it that I'm sharing from these extraordinary investors, re really powerful ideas that they live by. And I think you want to take a handful of ideas that really resonate for you deeply and that, and that suit your character and your temperament. And then, as Monish would say, you, you do them a thousand percent. He said it, it just doesn't work. He said, you know, Monish is always full of expletives. And, and he's like, you, um, he said, yeah, these fucking people, they say, yeah, this is a great idea. And then they don't do it. He's like, you know, and there's this idea that they, they, they take a good idea. They dabble in it a little bit. They take it for a ride around the block and then they forget about it. And I'm sure you see it in your own life where we'll say yeah. something like, okay, I'm going to start to meditate because I can see that's really important. And, you know, you meditate for three days or three weeks and then you stop and, you know, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start to exercise because it's, it's going to be good for my peace of mind. And then, you know, you buy the kettlebells and you use them once. And, and, and I think one of the things that distinguishes the great investors from most of us is this fervency, this intensity to take a simple idea and take it seriously. So, so there are a few ideas that I took from the great investors that I decided, no, I'm, I'm going to go big on that. That's, that has to become a core of my life. And so, so I would, I would hope, I would hope that the readers will do the same, that this isn't, this isn't just an entertaining read of, about these remarkable people and how they've done what they've done, but that you actually kind of internalize and weaponize a few of the really key ideas that resonate for you. So that it actually changes your life. Yeah, no, it's um, actually, <clears throat> I've um, um, taken some notes um, with, with, a, with a pencil. <laughs> ah. But one of them is, is actually, I gotta read it again and not in the same order, but actually start with, with the, the few I've found were, were the most fascinating. They're all fascinating, but, um, you got to go back and um, because you write in a very enjoyable way, so it's easy to, to 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 read through the book almost like it's a novel or or um, or a drama or or whatever, and then you forget about the insights. Um, so you got to go back and um, and take one chapter at a time. I think. Well, it's it's funny. I sent an early draft of the chapter about Nick Sleep and Zach to Guy Spear, and Guy said. I need to keep this by my bed and read it again and again and again to internalize certain ideas. And then Monish said to me that that chapter has changed the way he invests. So here you have someone who's one of the great investors, who's the focus of the first chapter. And he's actually, he's actually totally changed the way that he views the world and invests based on what he learned from Nick, Nick especially, Nick Sleep in that chapter, but also Zach. Um, and I have a feeling that, you know, Monish, Monish has an ability to clone a good idea in a way that almost none of us can. And he said there's an idea in that chapter that he's, that he's going to clone. Um, and I sort of said to Monish, I figure he's going to end up making hundreds of millions of dollars off that chapter and is going to, and then is going to, you know, give all the money away to educate um, incredibly smart 
kids in India through his his foundation, Dakshana, that sends kids to, to um, the Indian equivalent of MIT or, or to medical school, kids with very, very high IQs um, from typically extremely poor families. And so I kind of love the idea that that in the right hands, the book can actually do a tremendous amount of good that that this could actually, you know, because there are going to be future billionaires who read the book, who who figure out they'll listen to certain things and they'll, I, I don't have a particularly great gift for investing or making money. So, so an insight from Nick Sleep is not going to enable me to make a fortune, but it's going to enable Monish to. And I, I mentioned in, 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 in the notes at the back of the book that um, a friend of mine read um, Joel Greenblatt's first book. I, I write a lot about Joel Greenblatt. And he said, that one book made me $10 million. And, and I mentioned that my wife pointed out that I'd read the book, but it didn't make me $10 million. So, uh, you know, but in the right hands, these insights are very, very powerful, I think. And I, I say that not, not in self-congratulation because they're not really my insights. I'm, I'm synthesizing the best of what these extraordinary investors have told me. And so I, I'm using what they've told me to help me in my own life, but I'm really trying to share the, the best of what they've learned with other people. And, and, and one of the joys of writing this book is that there are, there are people who are, who are dead, who I'm writing about, who have passed on extraordinary wisdom um, in interviews that I did with them maybe 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm sharing things that Sir John Templeton told me 20 years ago about things that he did in the 1930s and 1940s that he learned during World War II, another extraordinarily trying period for the world. I'm, I'm sharing things that Bill Ruin, who died many years ago, who's an extraordinary investor, had learned from a guy called Alfred Hettinger, or Albert, sorry, Albert Hettinger, who was a great, uh, a great investor who, who had lost everything in 1929, in the crash of 29. And so I'm literally, I'm sharing lessons that the late Bill Ruin learned from the late Albert Hettinger a century ago. And then I'm sharing lessons that, that Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, which now manages something like $6.3 trillion, had learned from his mentor, who, who was a guy called Walter Morgan. And there's a thing, there's a story I mentioned in the, the notes on additional sources and resources in the book, where when I was interviewing Jack Bogle 20 years ago over the phone, the phone suddenly went dead. And I thought, oh my God, I've lost him. And I then realized that he was crying because as he talked about his mentor, he became so choked up and he said, I, I'm sorry, it's putting tears in my eyes. And he said, I, 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 I said, sorry, uncomfortably, how come? And he said, I realized how much he did for me and how much I loved him. And that's an extraordinary privilege for me to be able to share the wisdom that someone as extraordinary as Jack Bogle, who, who Buffett regards as probably the person most worthy of having a statue built for him in the investment world, to, for me to be able to share the wisdom that Bogle got from his hero years after Bogle died, um, that's, a, that's a great privilege. So I'm, I'm trying in some sense to preserve the best of what these people figured out. Um, can I just ask you um, one thing? I mean, people tend to be attracted to different aspects of investing, right? It, it could be the detective work, putting the mm. puzzles to, together, or it could be the, the competitive edge of it all you know to to be winning yeah. <laughs> quote unquote or it could be the mathematical um part of it almost i mean 
what um, and, and you, you obviously see different traces from from the different people you you, you meet in the book in, in this but um what, what do you find most fascinating about about investing personally i think for me one of the great joys of it goes back to my original fantasy of it 25 years ago which is it's it's a game in which if you think well, there are tremendous rewards just by doing a few um, basic things right. The difference over many years is extraordinarily profound. And so for example, dur during, during the worst of the COVID meltdown where the market had been really crashing and I think it went down what 34% in a matter of weeks, less than, less than a month. So just during that period, for example, I'd been talking to people like Howard Marks and Bill Miller and the like. And, and so I think, I think I was, I was temperamentally and intellectually, I was positioned to know this is a, this, this disruption, this threat, um, uncomfortable as it is personally, um, and terrible as it is, as it is in human terms, is an incredible opportunity for investing. And so I'm not holding myself up as a particularly wise or smart investor by any means, but I, you know, I used that period to buy Berkshire Hathaway several times because I know that I'm happy to own it for many, many years. And so I kept falling, kept falling. I kept buying, kept buying. Didn't buy an enormous amount, but I added to my position because I, it's like buying a house in a, um, during a depression. You just feel like in one day you'll be happy to have a house in central London or the heart of Manhattan or heart of Stockholm or whatever. So, so I took advantage of, of it to do that. And then I cloned something that Monish Pabright did. So, so the last thing that you wanted to do was, was invest in malls at a time when all the malls around the world had suddenly been forced to, to close and nobody wanted to shop. Nobody, nobody wanted to be in public. Nobody was able to pay their rent. There were company retailers going bankrupt. And so Monish, who hadn't bought a single stock in the US um, in a couple of years, out of something like 3,700 stocks, he couldn't find one stock cheap enough to buy, suddenly moves extremely boldly and buys 13% of Seritage, which is a big mall operator. And so since then, for Monish, that's gone up, I, I guess, it's at least doubled. And so it's an incredible, it's an incredible example of how to make these very bold, decisive bets when there's a, you make, you make a few infrequent but bold bets in a concentrated manner. And this is what a lot of the greatest investors do, whether it's Munger or Buffett or, 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 or Monish or Howard Marks. And so I cloned that and I bought Seritage, um, not as cheap as he bought it, but still very cheap. And it's still quite volatile, but there are times where it's been up 70% or 100% or 120%. And mm. I'm expecting to own that for many years. Um, we'll see if I have the temperament and the patience to do it. But there's a great joy to the fact that just by thinking well, I made, I made a decent amount of money off it. And it gives you a sort of, it's, it's helpful financially, but I'm not planning to sell it at any point. So there is a kind of psychic joy, I think, to thinking well. And I think because I'm a slightly subversive human being with a slightly smart alecky quality and a bit of an outsider, I always liked the idea of 
how do I do well just by thinking? And instead of having to having to do what everybody else does to get their hands dirty. And I, I was also pretty lazy, I think. And when I interviewed people like Joel Greenblatt, who obviously is one of the greatest investors of all time, and I I, I wrote a long chapter about him, he he clearly has that same characteristic where he had these professors at Wharton who kept saying, well, the market is efficient. There's no way you can beat the market. And I think he has this kind of subversive glee in showing those professors again and again how wrong they were. And, you know, he, he averaged 40% a year for 20 years. And at, at that rate, you turn a million dollars into $837 million. That's the most incredibly emphatic way of telling your professors that they were wrong and you were right. And, and I remember him telling me that he came bottom in some class at, at business school. And, and then I think he went to Stanford just to delay having to get a proper job and dropped out of Stanford Law School. So it wasn't like he was a model student, but he said he said he'd never wanted to get a job where he, 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 he didn't want a job where you worked 100 hours a week at a bank or something like that. He, he said, I, I wanted a job where you didn't have to punch the clock and you were paid for good ideas. And I think that's part of the beauty of investing that you get paid for good ideas and it doesn't it doesn't have to be such a good idea like Bogle emphasized to me his phrase that's really lived in my mind is you don't have to be great i mean to be successful as an investor if if you just buy an index fund i mean even if you just buy one balanced index fund that owns us stocks US bonds, international stocks and international bonds, which is something that Ogle recommended to me as the, the simplest strategy on earth. You just have that one fund and you keep adding to it and you own it for the long run. You're getting, you're, you're putting the odds tremendously in your favor as, as Ed Thorpe said to me as well. You're, you're kind of playing the rising tide of the market. So that one idea of reducing expenses, riding the market, over many years. And then if you use a tax advantaged vehicle, so you're buying an IRA or a 401k or a 529 or whatever, whatever the plan is in your country, so that you're deferring, you're deferring the taxes and you're reducing the expenses. Just the benefit of that piece of good thinking over decades is so profound. And, and now that I'm in my early 50s, uh, I have to emphasize early 50s. Um, of course. I've started to see some of the benefits of things that I did when I first became obsessed with investing in my 20s, in my probably 24, 25, that sort of thing. And I had very, very little money then. So there were things that I did where I would put $3,000 in a fund. You know, it didn't make a huge amount of difference. But actually, there are things that I did when I first started to put, you know, as much money as I could in my 401k, for example, where that like really adds up over time. And I think part of the difficulty is that we're not really wired to appreciate the profound benefits of long-term compounding. So I, you know, I have a 22-year-old son and, and a 19-year-old daughter, and my son doesn't, it, it's really hard for him to say, well, look, if I have, have $1,000 in the world and I'm working hard to you know, make money by teaching guitar or teaching English, or you know, I really don't want to put $100 in a fund because it'll benefit me in 30, 40 years time. And so I think it's very, 
it's very difficult to think this way, but there's a, there's a kind of beauty to the fact that by mastering a few basic principles and thinking well, you, you outwit the crowd and then you make a tangible difference to your own life and, and to your ability to, to send your kids to college, uh, to the college of their choice, to live in a nice home, you know, and to, to have a little less fear about the uncertainty of the world. Because, you know, to have, to have a little bit of a financial cushion, it's not a guarantee of happiness by any means, but it's definitely a cushion. I mean, in a, in a time like this, like a, a COVID era or a, a global financial crisis, to, you know, what, what Irving Kahn's son said to me is um, that when other people are on the ledge to, to think, well, yeah, I'm unhappy. I wish my, I wish my um, life were better, but at least I'm not on the ledge. At least I'm okay. And so I think, I, I love the fact that a little bit of thinking well gives you that degree of independence and security and comfort and the ability to help other people. So, um, you know, instead of having to go to the food kitchen at a time like this, maybe you have the opportunity actually to give money to people who are going to the food kitchen. And so that's, and, and, and Arnold Vandenberg said to me, that's the great gift of the money that he's made is, is actually that he's able to help other people. I think I have his, um, sorry. Ah, his book of quotes. Yeah, that's yes. a lovely book. Um, love that one. Um, I don't have as many books as you do behind me. Huh. Uh, again, they're, they're at the work office, not the home office. I have to. Yeah, this is <laughs> just part of the collection, you know, that yes, there's, a, there's but, um, a lot more downstairs. Um, uh, love this one. So it's, yeah. that's another um, great one. Listen, um, time flies. Um, uh, there are obviously um, um, so much more in this book to to um, to talk about, but that uh, that'll be up to the to the people when when they when they read it because it's I think one um, you emphasize this as, as as well, and I hear it when you describe your your meetings with them. It's not that you interview them; you spend time with them, and that's a big difference. Um, and that, that's something you really you feel like you're spending time with with these people and even myself who, who, who work as a you know an investor it's um extremely enjoyable oh thank you I, i'm trying to take people inside the minds of these people but also inside their lives and that that's a big ask in a way you know you're spending in some case with someone like Arnold vanenberg i think i spent two and a half days with him in texas and i'm guessing that we've had at least 20 conversations on the phone in addition. Um, with Monish, I've traveled all over the place with Tom Gaynor, who's the co-CEO of Markel, who's a remarkable investor, who's a central character. I spent uh, two days with him in Virginia and you know, not only hung out with him at his office for a day and a half, but when I had dinner with him, with him and his wife and his home. And so you're, you're actually, you're going with him as he's going in his, in his very inexpensive electric car, because he's a very modest, humble guy, despite his extreme wealth, he's going to the supermarket and shopping for, for the salmon that he's gonna cook for you for dinner at night. And, you know, we had dinner together and you're literally, he and, he and his wife who runs part of the business of Markel, she won, runs one of, the, one of the companies that they own, they, they reach over and hold your hands as they do grace before a meal. 
And there's something very intimate about that experience. You really see the, the, the person at home. And so I could talk to him about things like what the financial crisis was like and have his wife say, that was that, that period and the 1999-2000 tech bubble were dark nights of the soul for Tom. And so, and, and Tom had said to me once when I had lunch with him in New York City, he said, look, I lost all of my hair during the financial crisis. And I, he's got a lovely sense of humor and it's very self-mocking. And I said, are you serious? And he said, no, no, I lost all of my hair. And so I think that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book is take you in a really intimate way into the lives of these people. So you're seeing not only how they think, but how they deal with difficult times, how they bounce back from these, these challenges and what keeps them going. And so dur during, during this recent period of COVID, I talked to Tom again, to Tom, uh, to Tom Gaynor about how he was dealing with it. And he said, I'm doing what I've always done, which is to put one foot in front of the other, to keep going and to keep trying to, to behave in the right way and to be, a, to, to, to be a model to the people in the company and to, to treat our customers right and our shareholders right. And so there's something about that ability to keep coming back and interviewing someone like Tom Gaynor or someone like Bill Miller, who I've interviewed for over the last 20 years, and I'm interviewing him again this afternoon. Um, there's something about that, that intimacy and trust that you build over many years that I, I think is very precious. And so, so what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is take advantage of the gift that I have in having that kind of access, which I, I, I don't take for granted. It's an amazing thing and, and share that with the readers of the book. And so I, I really hope it has a tremendous benefit for them and that they actually learn things that, that help them financially, but, you know, and professionally, but also help them personally. Because I think when you, when you read about these remarkable people and you see how they handle things like, adversity and setbacks and and what the money does for them and what habits help them and and how they balance family and work and things it's 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 inspiring and it's actually enlightening because it actually gives you a sense of oh this works and it's been time tested so that that's my goal for the book so i i hope i hope it does uh, uh, uh i hope it does help your your readers and i hope they'll keep in touch with me if, if they want to contact me i'm i'm on twitter i think i I think it's William Green 72. I'm on LinkedIn. You can email me, you know, let, let me know how it's, uh, how, how um, what, what resonates for you, what, what helps you, but I, I hope, I hope it helps you in your lives. That's great. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> um, thank you so much. I mean, last um, question, I'd be remiss if I didn't, investing by the books uh, is obviously um, a site only dedicated to, to, you know, financial literature and, and, adjacent areas but um what are you reading now what are you um Gosh, uh, really, reading the whole uh, time i mean literally in front of me i have two books on my desk here and the one that i have right in front of me which i i don't know <laughs> it's pretty esoteric it's called beloved of my soul letters of our master and teacher ravi huda svi brandwein his beloved student catalyst Rav Berg. and the reason i'm reading it is because today is the death anniversary of Rav brandwein who is a very extraordinary um, spiritual figure and and there's there's this slightly mystical idea that I, I despite the fact that I try to be a rational human being and to learn from people like Howard Marks and Charlie Munger about how to think I have this sort of slightly more um, uh, illogical irrational kind of mystical side and I I so I'm always very interested in these great 
spiritual teachers, particularly from um, two traditions, the, the Kabbalist tradition, which I think is very, very profound, to this form of ancient mysticism that um, has had, a, a, really, it's probably about four and a half thousand years old, and then also Tibetan Buddhism. And so there's a, so here's a, here's, here's another stash of books that I can show you that's right. um, on a similar topic. So these are, these are all from, uh, so that's, we, this wasn't pre-designed. So this is Tulku Urjian Rinpoche and his son Sokni Rinpoche and Tulku Urjian writing about his models um, uh, who taught him and Sokni Rinpoche again, Carefree Dignity. So I spend a lot of time when I'm not, um, when I'm not reading, i put these down, when I'm not reading about investing, I'm reading about stuff that these guys figured out. And it's, and it's very profound because part of what happens is you see these parallels between what they've figured out and what the great investors figured out. And so there's a beautiful phrase from Josh Waitskin, who wrote this wonderful book, The Art of Learning, who talks about thematic interconnectedness. And I think what part of what you're trying to do is find ideas from one discipline that also run through another discipline. And so, so I write in the book about deferred gratification and how it really runs through the Old Testament and through business and through investing and through life or the, the principle of simplicity, one which I write about at great length in, in a chapter about Joel Greenblatt, that runs through investing, it runs through businesses like Apple um, and Google, um, it runs through science with Occam's razor and the principle that that you tend to want to find the, the simplest principle. And so this stuff that seems kind of tangential that I'm reading actually is both delightful in its own right, but I think it's also very helpful because, um, for example, one of the things that the Tibetan Buddhists like Sotni Rinpoche, um, Rinpoche means um, precious one in, in Tibetan, I think, um, not, not that I speak any Tibetan at all, um, uh, so I'm probably wrong, but it means precious one. I think one of the things that they talk about is how to gain control of your mind and emotions, which obviously these meditation masters like, like he and his father and his brother, Mingyur Rinpoche, have thought about to an extraordinary extent. And, and for an investor, having that type of equanimity is enormously powerful. And so this might seem like some mad foray into something obscure, but actually I think it's, it's interesting that people like Ray Dalio have been doing trans transcendental meditation for decades. I think one of, the, one of the lessons of my book, I think, is that you have to focus on your, on your internal landscape, on, on, on peace of mind, because it affects everything, whether it's how you deal with your family, how you write, how you invest, how you manage a company, and so, so this is this is how I read. Really, it's it's I'm I'm just sort of foraging in all directions, looking for ideas, and I feel slightly guilty about it because I'm like, well, on what possible basis should I be reading about you know um, Rav Brandwine's teachings from uh, uh, that that he handed down in letters to his student who who also has passed away, you know? So one one dead master to another dead master writing letters. But, you know, I read them last night and I read, read a bit again this morning because it's very, very powerful and it, it centers you. I think it brings you back um, to what matters most in life. So, so, so I think, yeah, I want to I learn about how to invest better and how to live better and 
better habits and the like. But I think I think it's really helpful to be reading philosophy, spirituality, literature. I have a I have a book group that just studies um, great fiction that's with other other writers like Jason Zweig, the columnist at, um, at the Wall Street Journal is part of it. And there's a uh, great screenwriter who just got nominated for an Oscar for a, a screenplay that he wrote. And uh, John Gertner, who wrote The Idea Factory is in the group and Nina Monk, who wrote several great books. So, so and a former editor of Barron, you know, so they're, they're all writers and editors. And so that again, at the moment, we're reading A Sentimental Education by Flaubert. And so, I think you're, which, which has a lot about the stock market and about money and business and corruption and greed in it. So I think I'm constantly trying to, trying to gather ideas from everywhere without any real sense of whether it'll pay off, but just because it's interesting. And then paradoxically, it ends up kind of paying off because um, uh, you, you, uh, you, you do find there's this thematic interconnectedness and it's often the, the ability to draw insights from different disciplines as someone like Charlie Munger did with his, his lattice work of different mental models. I think that's very helpful, that ability to, to broaden your mind instead of just sticking with one, with one discipline. I think we're um, the, the, all um, four or five of us that are working on, on this side, we're striving for uh, Charlie Munger's ambition of being a, with a, a book with four legs sticking out or with yeah. two legs sticking out. Although Charlie doesn't read f fiction, which, um, and I've discussed that a lot with, with Guy Spear. And, and I think this is one of the few areas where Charlie, who both of us revere, may be wrong. Uh, but for him, it served him well, and he reads so broadly. But I, I think um, life without reading great fiction is not as good a life as one in which you read great fiction. And, and, there, and there are things that the great novelists figured out about human nature that are so profound and so beautiful that I think just, just, to, just to read nonfiction, I think, is a mistake because... Um, you also want to you want to expose yourself to what the best of humankind has done, and that means listening to great music, seeing great art, um, visiting beautiful places, um, you know, great buildings, uh, reading reading great literature. So it's possible that even Charlie is sometimes wrong, but probably not. <laughs> I'd, I'd put your money on Charlie, not me. Yeah. Well. Um... Again, William, thank you so much for your time. I'll um, let you have some time off before your um, virtual meeting with Mr. Miller. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to talk to him this afternoon. So, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It's been a real pleasure. Real pleasure, yeah. All right. I appreciate your time, Henry. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at IB dot podcast at redeye.se to improve the podcast we really appreciate your feedback so please rate and review us notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice this information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only for full disclaimer visit redeye.se for the editing of this podcast we thank Jon Hintze and for the graphic design Jesper Viking I'm your host Eddie Palmgren and until next time I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing